Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Thanks, Dan, so much. Uh, and good morning, everyone. Wow. Wow. Good morning, everyone. Help me. That was still weak. Good morning, everyone. There we go. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Good morning. Keep your eye toys out, as Dan said, in your Blackberries or your Bible uh, as we're beginning uh, week two, actually, in our series in the book of Revelation. And so if you have a Bible electronically or physically, we would love you to turn to Revelation chapter one again. That's where we'll begin. And again, uh, a good morning to you, our online audience, wherever you might be in the world. Glad you're here uh, today. Uh, last week I was in bed with my wife. It was uh, late at night. I turned around and I said, I love you. She said, I love you too. And we turned our separate ways and went to sleep. And uh, no, that happens every night. That's normal, right? I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, okay. And uh, I thought about it. I thought about just the little phrase of saying to my wife, I love you. And she said, I love you back. I would say that years later into marriage, actually our love is stronger now than it was, which is a good sign. We have good days, we have bad days, we have terrible days, we have fantastic days, but the love is deeper than it was. But I was also thinking about just age and stage in life, and I know we have probably four generations in our own community and and you online, and I was just thinking about me now and me then and where we're going You know, I'm 36, I drive a minivan, I have a mortgage, I have three kids, I'm balding, like, you know, midlife, we're here. And uh, I said that in my small group last night, and the guy's like, no, no, I'm like, suck it up, you are in midlife, deal with it. Uh, We are here. And, um, And it was just, it was so interesting thinking about my life today, busy, chaotic, exciting, full, and then thinking about when Joan and I f- first started dating and then we're first married. I mean, we, we had so much more freedom. We understood what the movies were. We don't even know what that is anymore. Uh, we could hang out. We could go out for dinner. We were infatuated. We were in love. In the first few years of our marriage, it was intense on all sorts of levels. Uh, it was great. And then life got not more complicated. It just got busier. It's not bad or, or good. It's just it is what it is. But as I rolled over and thought about our first years together and now our middle years together as a couple, I realized something at 11 o'clock at night. I have to fight for that first love. I need to keep dating my wife because I don't want to wake up at 37 or 40 or 50 and 60 and look at her and go, and who are you again? Because actually in our church and in our culture, That's happening more and more. See, I didn't marry my children. I love my children, but my wife is more important than my children. I didn't marry this church, though I love you. I didn't marry myself, by the way, either. I gave myself to someone else. And what I am learning just in my walk is this. I have to fight for my first love with my wife, because if I don't, I'll just become another statistic. I got a dater. I got a wooer. I got to think about it. Every guy's like, shut up, John, please. You're setting us all up. <laughs> yes, I am, actually, for all of us. And of course, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if that's true on a human level, then it's, it's even more profoundly true on a, on a spiritual level, especially for us who've walked for Jesus, with Jesus for months or, or years or, or decades. Because sometimes the truth is, if we would not be self-deceived, if we would be in a place where we could hear, not just 
hear what we want or what we think, but we could hear heaven clearly, many of us would roll over and say to Jesus, and who are you again? Today is about first love. Today is about hearing Jesus. Today is about asking him to speak clearly for the sake of our relationship with him and others. But before we get there, let me step back. I want to remind every one of us about this year so far. I want to do a quick summary because it's important as we begin. This year, whether you know it or not, the option of Christian joy has been presented to myself and to you. Joy has been given, scripture is clear, but the question is, will you embrace it? We've learned all sorts of things this year. We've learned that we will find Christian joy when we serve. We found that in the spiritual gift series. The joy that is best experienced and understood through service is when we know our spiritual gifts. At Christmas, if you remember, we celebrated and once again understood and experienced the joy of his first coming when God came for us when we could not get to him. We dove into the book of Philippians where Paul shared what joy looks like, one of his sub-themes, where joy is found and how it can be cultivated in a season of suffering. Dave spoke on the joy that God promises us when we're generous, generous with our time, our money, our gifts, our life. At Easter, we affirmed and experienced the joy of his resurrection, that he walks among us and, and that he's with us and there's joy connect there. And then we even out of that talked about that, that idea of being clothed with power from on high, which will produce joy. But as we come to the end of the ministry year, out of some key prayer times, it was this section of the Bible, Revelation 1, 2, and 3, where we were led. Now, some of you may ask, well, where is the joy in that? Well, last week, Joanna preached on this and alluded to one major aspect. And let me remind you, it's worship. Here in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, we encounter Jesus in the grandest, most exalted, most revealed way. And so we are moved to worship him when we encounter him more fully, more honestly. We are called to be consumed by his presence and his power. There is joy when we worship Jesus. Now, I can't make you worship, but if you would be open, worship and joy, I remind you, are one experience in the same. Because when you worship in song or in life, you are not going to a concert. You are not just doing life. It's not just a categorized experience. When you truly worship, you encounter a living person. And how can you not have joy when you meet Jesus? But there's more. This series that we're now into is not just about having a deepening sense of worship towards the living Christ and thus having joy. It's more. There is freedom and there is joy in knowing what Jesus, hear me please, what the living Jesus says to you and us about our condition. Not just what he's done for us in the past, that is the cross and his former work, nor what he's going to do with us and the whole cosmos in the future. The question in this series is, what is Jesus going to personally say to you during this service, during this series? Is there an openness in us to say to him, yes, I want to know, Jesus, what you really think of me? Jesus, who knows all, sees all, who is the glorified one, I want to know what you think of C4 Church. Because if we would allow him to speak and we would trust him, remember I said this before in another series, many of us love Jesus, very few of us trust him. 
If we would be in the place to be open to his mind, his will, his word, we will experience profound joy because we will not be interpreting what we think about ourselves or about this church. We will hear from the one who knows. So the question is, are you ready to hear? Joanna last week preached that within this amazing book of the Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. They were the original audience to this book of Revelation. And let's not forget that they were seven real churches, not invented, not metaphorical. They were gathering groups of people just like us. They met in churches in Asia, now Turkey, and they were all connected by one road. So let me give you a Canadian or an Ontario example. It's sort of like they're connected by the 401 or the 404 and those groups. So you could go from Windsor all the way to Oshawa, and you could walk along sort of a group of roads and a group of cities, and that's where all these churches met. Now, some believe that this part of the book of Revelation has two purposes. One is Jesus is actually speaking to real churches 2,000 years ago. Everyone would agree. Others think there's another purpose, that these churches we're about to start going through represent church history, and that church history will end like the broken church of Laodicea. I just want to say right up front, though I respect those who hold that position, I think they're wrong. I do not believe that's what this is about at all. These letters to these churches and the book of Revelation itself, in my opinion, was given to the church for three reasons. If you're a note taker, this is a good time to begin. Revelation was given for three reasons. It was not, by the way, to write books about the end times and become a millionaire. Can I just say that out loud? Yeah, amen. It's not. The book of Revelation was given for three reasons. First of all, it was given to a group of real churches so they could walk closer to Jesus. Period. It was given to them to walk with Jesus. Second, it was given to Christians who were being persecuted terribly so they would be faithful and not given to the political or religious culture of their own cities or Rome itself, no matter the cost. It is amazing that when you read church history or if you ever have the privilege to hang out with Christians who have truly been persecuted, truly, they will tell you the most valuable book for them is the book of Revelation. Why? Well, it comes to the third reason. See, in the original context, it was either Caesar or Jesus. Who would they worship? Who would they live for? Who would they give to? In the middle of real pressure by friends, there's a hostility growing, and Jesus shows up to speak to them. So it's given to speak to Christians. It's given to persecuted Christians so they give in, and why? Revelation is given to the whole church to show us where history ends. I love what Eugene Peterson wrote in his book, Reverse Thunder. He says, you really want to know what Revelation is really about? Here it is. It's God's famous last words on everything. It's God's last word on scripture. It's God's last word on the church. It's God's last word on worship, on evil, on prayer, on witnessing. It's God's last words on heaven and on hell. And most importantly, it's God's last word on Jesus. Never forget that this letter is by Jesus, about Jesus, and for Jesus. He's the agent of the letter, and he's the content of the letter. And the takeaway for these battered, beat-up followers of Jesus is this. Ready? In the light of the risen Christ, they know one thing. God will not be mocked. God wins in the end. And all the people and all the political systems and all the religions and all the friends and all the family that seem so much stronger in the now will be broken because every knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Alpha, Omega, author of history, King of kings, Lord of lords. Who's Caesar again? That's the point. 
That's the point. The book of Revelation is given to us to encourage us in our walk. It is given to persecuted Christians so they don't give in. And it is given to all Christians so we know who really wins in the end. So we all keep faithful too. Now last week, Joanna preached these words. That we're going to walk together as a family and with Jesus through the first three chapters. To look at each church and to hear God's words of encouragement, censure, counsel, and warning to them and to us. Each letter to each church was a prophetic word from Jesus through the Spirit of God to John. So the question you need to ask, and I have been asking already, is this. Every week, each devotional time you have in the next seven weeks, and in your connect groups, is this. Who is Jesus? Very significant. Who is Jesus in the light of the book of Revelation? What is Jesus saying to you? And then what is he saying to our church as a whole? And why? Let me say it again. To see Jesus clearly will allow us to worship him more properly, which will produce joy. And to hear Jesus clearly will lead us both to repentance and affirmation. If we are open, that will produce freedom and joy in us too. So let's begin where we did last week, Revelation 1. Turn in your Bibles. John, I remind you, is Jesus' closest friend on earth. He walked with him. He saw all he did. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there when he died. He held Jesus' mother as Jesus was murdered. He was there when Jesus was resurrected. He was there when Jesus was taken up into glory, what we call the ascension. And now, in this point of history, John the Apostle is the only one left of the original 12. Every other one of them has been murdered for the faith. He's 90 years old, and he got kicked out of the city of Ephesus, Because he loved Jesus. He's exiled by the government to an island called Patmos. As Joanna said last week, he's in a worship service by himself on Sunday. He's caught up in the spirit and he sees his old friend again. But now he sees him in a way he never experienced, even at the ascension. He is now glorified. Hear again the word of God. This is the Jesus we worship in this church. Revelation 1.12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Therefore... Therefore, write what you've seen, what is in the now and what is to come later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels to the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now let me just stop again as we get going, and I want to say this this morning. What Jesus do you think you know? Who do you think you're going to meet and give an account to when you die? Who do you think is among us sitting here right now, whether you feel him or not? Who did you just give to in your offering? Who did you just pray to? Who did you just sing to? How does this image of Jesus affect your very life? If the whole universe one day is going to pay homage to Jesus and is going to have to confess him, are you already doing this? Remember this C4 Church. 
the one that we will meet, the one that we will personally give an account to, the one we're going to talk to is this one, the risen one, the powerful one, Jesus the Christ. He is the one that we live for and remember he is the one we live our life in front of whether we believe it or not. Interesting thought though. I was reading a Jesuit priest this week thinking on the modern world and our Christian faith and he asked the most important of questions. He says, is Jesus of the Gospels, imagined and loved within the dimensions of the Mediterranean world, capable of still forming and embracing the center of our ever-expanding universe? Is the world not in the process of becoming more vast, more dazzling than even God himself? Will it not burst our religions asunder? Will it not eclipse our God? Very important question. And the answer to that honest question that many Christians have, but they dare not utter, and many others outside of the church have, is a resounding no. Jesus will not be swallowed up, and God will not be eclipsed. When we read and hear and see and encounter Jesus in his fullest expression here in the book of Revelation. It was St. John of the Cross, that famous Christian mystic, who wrote these things once he thought on the resurrected Christ. He says, therefore, if someone was now to ask of God, or seek a vision or another revelation, he would not only be acting foolishly, but would be committing an offense against God, for he should set his eyes altogether upon Christ and seek nothing beyond Christ. So with Jesus at the center, with Jesus overall, with Jesus so high, no power can bring him down, no Caesar can overcome him, with no technology that we put our trust in, with no power, no political move, no weapon, no new discovery, no event, now with our vision affixed on the resurrected Jesus, the churches living under those who thought Jesus had no power, that Jesus shows up and affirms them, corrects them, and gives them motivation to keep going, and reminds them that what you experience in the now is not the full picture. John starts by writing to a church that he came from, a church in the most important city of Asia. It's his old city of Ephesus. It was the heart of import and export for all of Asia. Its population at this time was 250,000. You go, that's nothing. In that time, that was the size of New York City. It was a significant, significant, significant city. You can read how the church was birthed in Acts 18 and 19. That's on your connect sheets. But also, it's a very dark place. It was one of the most important places where emperor worship took place. If you traveled there back then, you would find temples and groups that worshipped actual emperors. Claudius, Hadrian, who built the famous the wall, Severius, Augustus, Domitian, who would actually kill thousands of Christians. A new cult to the emperors opened only five years before John met Jesus in this revelation. But beyond the power of the place, beyond the, the materialism and the economics of the place, the importance and the emperor worship, there's even a darker side. The city was known for being the center of all learning and all practice when it came to occultism, magic. In those times, if you referred to anything as magical, you would call it Ephesian writing. So, as I've preached before, if you went to Chapters or Indigo or Amazon.ca or Barnes & Noble for the American friends out there, if you went there, you wouldn't go to the New Age section, you wouldn't go to the Witchcraft section, the Occult section, or Half the Help, Self-Help section. You'd go to the Ephesians section because Ephesians or Ephesus was known for being the heartbeat of the occult. It should not shock us that Paul spends much of his time talking about spiritual conflict in his letter to the Ephesians. 
At the heart of that dark spiritual condition was a widespread cult to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, that temple, and it was linked to all these magical practices. Christians at this time regarded the idol not just as a dead thing, but as a living demon that was influencing the whole area. And so when Paul talks about hostile powers in the book of Ephesians, he's thinking on the spiritual forces that were really there at that time in Ephesus. So you have Christians, just like you, living in the heart of a weird mix of the heartbeat of economy, politics, and religion. It's the center of new age and occultic thinking. There's a huge industry and practice connected to it. Emperors are worshipped there. There's also a large Jewish population that's also now angry at you because you're now proclaiming that Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in flesh, and everything of the Old Testament was anticipation for him. And then if that wasn't enough, then there are traveling preachers who called themselves Christians, who showed up in your morning services, were doing really cool healings, and actually when you talk to them, the Jesus they were representing wasn't even the one you thought was Jesus. So these average Christians are living in the tension with family, friends, the government, the kingdom of darkness, the Jewish population, the local economy, and false Christians. Anyone want to go to that church on a Sunday morning? This is their reality. Real pressure is being brought on these normal Christians to compromise. Now you go like, John, that was such a long intro. Get on with it. Now hear Jesus' words to this church. Because if you do not understand the background, you miss the power of what Jesus says, good and bad. Revelation 2.1. To the angel at church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the words Jesus now speaks. The same voice that brought nothing to everything met Moses and Elijah, the burning bush. Jesus shows up. Thus saith Jesus. His words are perfect. They're without flaw. They're without error. He is the opposite of everything they're facing. And notice, the first thing he says is, I hold the stars in my hands. The angels of the churches, whether they are actually the angels assigned to fight on their behalf or they represent church leaders or both, the point is this. You do not need to fear. The church itself and those who represent it are in the hands of Jesus. We are positionally and eternally secure, which, by the way, should produce joy in us. But notice C4, and this is very important and for, for the series and for us, Jesus walks among the lampstands. Jesus at this moment is really here in this room right now. He's coming to speak to you and to us. This is the growing reality in our church that Jesus is actually speaking and some people are finally listening. We have grounded our hope in his past work. We're expectant for his future work, but we're asking as we're secure in his hands, what do you say today? Jesus comes to this church and to us and says the next words in verse 2, I know. I know for real. I know more than you know. Sin does not affect me. Self-deception is not my experience. People-pleasing is not my problem. Nothing obstructs or blinds me. So let me tell you in love and holiness the truth about you, the truth about your family, the truth about children, the truth about the church. He says, I know your deeds. You work hard, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you have found them false. Jesus shows up to a group of Christians and says, thank you. When was the last time you ever thought about Jesus saying thank you to you? Many of us don't think about that. He says, thank you. 
Thank you for your holy resistance. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your staying power. Thank you for being a hard worker for me. Thank you for standing in truth in the world of gray and deep darkness. Thank you for saying no to falseness and yes to me. He says in verse 3, you've persevered and endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Persecution from the political system, from Roman expectations, from family and friends that don't get why you won't swear to Caesar anymore, why you don't act the way you used to sexually, politically, religiously. These people had given up the occult. They had given up worshiping Caesar. Some of them probably had lost jobs because their jobs were connected to producing the stuff for Artemis. They stood in the face of the devil. They actually tried dealing with the Jewish community and saying, no, we are with you. We worship the same God. They lost so much. They had exposed the occult for being useless and broken and life-giving. They even stood up against Christians who thought they were Christians and weren't. Some of you have experienced this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Your family or your friends just don't understand anymore why you're one of those people. Why have you become one of those? You used to be so normal. Now that? What happened to you? But in the battle... In the battle, many of them were actually saved and birthed in. They had not emerged unscathed. Their love was broken. Their love had waned. And actually, I would name it this way. I think they had pioneer fatigue. When you birth something and you fight for it as a leader or a community, and you come out on the other side, most people that birth something tend to become suspicious, jaded, untrusting, controlling, seeing conspiracy and enemies everywhere. Who has the time to love? in the middle of hand-to-hand combat. Have you ever thought about that? They had been vigilant to Jesus, but they were not loving anymore. They weren't warm. They weren't close to Jesus, the one they supposedly were representing. He says, I hold this against you, verse 4. You've forsaken the love you first had. While standing for truth, you've become, one word, angry. And this is not just a flaw, something to think about, but maybe not act on. This is a fatal flaw. See, what this is, is forsaken love. These Christians did not love God in the sense they were not involved in worship in the authentic way. They were not in awe of God. They were not personally obeying out of love. They were not in a deep relationship with Jesus. The honeymoon was over. The wanting to be with him, to do life together was long over. And here it is. Everyone ready? When you lose love for Jesus, you will turn on other Christians. When you stop loving Jesus in a deep way, you will consume other Christians. Without love, the congregation ceases to be a church, even if it keeps meeting. If you're holding on to bitterness today, anger, mistrust, if you slander, if you're jealous, if you're proud, if you're unsubmissive, it's a great chance your love is gone. Let me give you a modern TV example. Everyone know the Energizer Bunny? Everyone? Yes? Okay, Bunny, right? The brilliance of that ad campaign was it just keeps going. And this thing, bang, 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 we're like, oh, oh, I know, right? Like, Energizer Bunny. That's what many Christians without love look like. They are hardworking, they are perseverant, and they even have the battery to keep going. But they are mechanical. There's no diamondism, there's no relationship, there's no intimacy with the Energizer Bunny. It just bangs and bangs. And if you've ever been around a Christian who stopped deeply loving Jesus and others, they just get on your nerves, though they are serving. They're like, oh, I thank you for your perseverance. I want to hit you, right? Like that. That's the heart of it. We cannot afford to become faithful, perseverant Christians with no love. 
Because though we are faithful, which is wonderful, if there's no love, we become annoying and broken, and no one listens to us anymore. This whole church had become here. How consider how far you've fallen, he says. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's impossible sometimes to talk about this, but I'll try. Simply, we can gradually lose love without even realizing it. The Greek says, hold on to the memory. Go back and think. He says, consider church how far you've fallen. This again, I remind you, is to Christians. Repent is, don't just express an emotion about it. Don't just say, yes, I'm wrong, but do nothing. Do something. Go back to your first love. But if you do not act, hear this this morning. The head of the church will act. And this is what he says to a local church like us. I will come and I will remove your lampstand. This is not saying they're going to lose their place in heaven or their corporate salvation, but they will cease to exist as a church even though they continue to meet. The light of Jesus Christ will cease to shine in the middle of Rome, in the middle of the New Age occultism, in the middle of God's chosen but blinded people. The kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God will so, that was so radically demonstrated will actually be removed. And Jesus will come, and he will remove it from one of his churches. Here's the aha moment for some of us. Never forget that though God loves us deeply, passionately, currently, and actively, his glory is more important than any of us sitting in this room. If you touch the living, risen Jesus' glory, even if you are elect, even if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, there will be consequences. Jesus comes to a local church and says, if you do not repent because you no longer love me and thus do not love others, I will come and I will remove your influence as a church. He says, you have this one thing in your favor, verse 6. You do hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans called themselves Christians, but they had worked out a system where they said, we're going to keep worshiping other gods, We're going to keep sexually doing anything we want with our bodies, and yet we're still going to go to church because we're free in Jesus. Since we've got fire insurance, we can do anything we want. So we can kiss the mouth of Jesus and kiss the mouth of an idol and kiss the mouth of any man or woman or in between and go hang out with some religious prostitutes and come to communion and everything's just fine. And the Ephesian church said, not here you don't. And Jesus shows up and thanks them. Now let me just stop and say this to you. Some of you are that. If you, if you live your life where if I sat with you or someone else sat with you and we could not tell the difference between you and anyone else in society, even though you claim the name of Jesus, you're a Nicolaitan. If you say, yes, I believe as Jesus is Savior and Lord, but there is no diamondism, no difference in your walk, in your ethics, You're one of these people. And Jesus comes to you, not of hatred, out of love, and says, repent. There's joy in what I provide. That stuff is just death. This church had to stand up against his own and say, you can't do this, not here. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, all of this culminates in Jesus' simple but profound call. Are you listening? This implies that every Christian in church has to be open. You have to be ready to hear from the Holy Spirit as a Christian and as a church. 
The Holy Spirit is sent to illumine, to show, to reveal, to rebuke, to renew, to revive, and to awaken. The sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is key to renewal, key to revival, and key to awakening. Without the Holy Spirit, we will never hear or be challenged, nor will we ever know Jesus. Now, Jesus says to this church, and hear this today, if you repent, if you walk with me, then here's my promise to you. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you say victorious. Does that mean I can never fall again? No. Here's what it does mean. To you who are faithful, in other words, to you who walk with me to the end, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. Now, this is significant. In the back, at the beginning of time, the Garden of Eden, there was two trees. Do you remember? The tree of good and evil, and this tree, the tree of life. When Adam and Eve chose to violate God and his law and ate from the tree of good and evil, they were separated from God, they lost choice, and they were, they were found basically spiritually dead. God immediately, if you know the story, stood between them, sent angels, so they could not eat from the tree of life. Why? Because God was a thug? No. God did not want us to live perpetually forever as fallen people. If Adam and Eve had eaten from the one tree and ran over to the other tree, there would be no redemption for any of us. So God in mercy stops us from the tree of life. Well, you know how the story goes. In the middle of the story, Jesus shows up and dies on another tree and forgives us. And now at the end of time, Jesus says to his church, I'm going to give you back the tree of life, the great symbol of eternity. In other words, as one pastor said, the whole Bible can be summarized as this. It's the tale of three trees. Good, eh? It's the tale of three trees. And so at the end of time, now what takes place? He comes back to a church that's been faithful in theology, but terrible in their love, terrible in their worship, and says to them, repent. I want to produce joy in you. I want you to eat from this tree. What a beautiful picture for those who are being beat up for their faith, that one day they're going to eat from the tree. It is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of stability. And then what happens next? Well, here it is. Nothing. Silence is given. Because the implication is, what would the church do? They'd done such great work for Jesus. They were fighters for truth. And yet they had lost the one thing that's supposed to mark a Christian. A deep love for Jesus and love for others. Even a love for their enemies. A deep, passionate, if I can say the word, youthful, zestful, love, walk, that's marked with obedience, holiness, and worship. So the question is now to us. At the heart of this, whole series is, are we willing to hear? Jesus, let me say this this morning, will never humiliate you, but he will humble you for his glory and our freedom so others meet Jesus. So before I give some application, I want us to stop for a moment, you online too, and I want you to ask yourself the question, are you even willing to hear? And if you are, I want you to pray this prayer. And I'm going to pray it right now. I'll lead you in it, and then we'll respond. It's called the prayer of examine. It's an old but needed prayer. So if you're in the place where you can say to Jesus, yes, I want to hear what the Spirit has to say to me in our church, then pray this. And here it is. Pray along with me. Precious Jesus, Savior, why do I fear your scrutiny? Yours is an examine of love. Still, I am afraid. I'm afraid of what may surface. Even so, I invite you to search me in my depth so I would know myself 
and know you in a fuller measure. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So now we've prayed that, and hopefully you meant it. Let me give some responses. Here it is. Number one. To you that have not met Jesus at all, please hear this. To you that have the title Christian, or you're part of another religion, you're atheist, agnostic, whatever you call yourself, today now you know who God is and what he's about. Relationship, love, holiness, joy, hope, truth, freedom. God is not a distant God, he's involved. But do you have ears to hear the implication of this? I love what Mark Driscoll said a few weeks ago. They actually happened to be doing the same series we are. And he said these, these things. When sinful people meet Jesus, they don't slap him on the back and go on their merry way. They fall on their face. The resurrected Jesus is not your homeboy. I love that. He's the sovereign ruler and the head of the church who holds the universe in his very hands. John was Jesus' best friend, and yet John doesn't even embrace him when he shows up. He falls like a dead man. Pure holiness demands the falling of a sinful human. However, it doesn't just do that. Jesus, who died for the sins of John and all of us, pulls him up with his right hand, honoring him and says, do not be afraid. The holy revelation of Jesus Christ demands that we repent, we give our life to him and turn from sin. But it offers a grace, a fearless acceptance, because he's alive, because he's forgiven sin and Satan and he's conquered death. If you're a person here this morning that has never genuinely embraced this Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, this revelation demands that you physically or or symbolically get on your face before Jesus and say, I am sinful. I have sinned against you. I am not to the standard you are. Forgive me my sins. I place my trust in you. And I ask you to take your right hand and lift me up and fearlessly embrace me. Now take a moment while I talk to some Christians. Take a moment because I'll give you the opportunity to meet him. But like I just said, you cannot meet Jesus on your terms. You meet him on his. He is the glorified one. But when you meet him, such joy will be given to you as some of us can to attest. Christians, a few things as we begin. Some of you need to be congratulated by Jesus. Jesus actually is showing up among you right now is by his spirit and some of you online and saying to you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for standing for truth. Thank you that you've been faithful, that you've worked hard, that you've served. You've been faithful with your money, your time, your gifts. Jesus says to you, well done. He actually smiles at you. He's pleased with you. For some of you that have had to stand up to your family, your friends, you've had to stand up for God's truth at work when it costs you. He says, thank you. And let me say to our whole church, our church must become more and more and more serious about God and his word, his truth, as we live in a postmodern culture. As one professor wrote, as relativism increases in our culture, discernment and the backbone to stand against error becomes more increasingly unpopular and increasingly vital. The current postmodern culture of university and life actually says you can share any belief you want, which gives us new opportunity. But it also forbids us of trying to convert anyone as if we have absolute truth. But the problem is that's exactly what we want to do as Christians. We want people to understand the gospel and embrace Jesus. And yet, even in this time, some Christians are growing uncomfortable with the idea of absolute truth. I need to say to us at C4 Church, do not become uncomfortable with absolute truth. Don't become uncomfortable with Jesus. Don't become uncomfortable that he is the only way. Don't become uncomfortable that we believe life starts at conception. It does. 
Don't become uncomfortable with a biblical view of sexuality. You better be full of grace and truth. You never can be a jerk in the name of Jesus, but you should never be ashamed of Jesus and his views. We need to stand for truth. Why? Because Jesus himself walks among us. We need to work with passion, intensity, but gentleness and respect as we stand in a culture that's very similar to what the Ephesians went through. So some of you just need to hear this this morning. Jesus says, I am so pleased. But here's the other side of it. Jesus also comes to some of us and says, yes, you are positionally fine, but are you willing to let me speak and show up in your life again? Here's some questions for you as we come to an end. Are you more in love with Jesus today than when you first met him? Have you found yourself caught in the trap of being judgmental rather than being loving? Truth without vibrant love, a vibrant, renewed relationship, only brings misery and never joy. G.I. Packer wrote these words a long time ago, and they're relevant. He said, most Christians can smell, uh, smell unsound doctrine a mile away. Here it is, though. And yet the fruit of personal experiences with God are rare among us. Can I say that again? The fruit of personal experiences of God prove rare among us. We supposedly know a living God, right? Right? And yet the experiences and the love and the intimacy and the passion with us and God is so rare even in this church. It is great we stand for truth, but if we are not walking in a dynamic way with Jesus, something is wrong. The cry is for this church to love Jesus more and more has to be our cry. Why? Have you ever thought that Jesus could show up at this church and remove our lampstand? I'd never considered it. For many of us that defend truth, we must be reminded that theology is not a subject. He's a living person. And if you're all head and no heart, repent. If you've worked hard and you've been faithful, but on the journey you've become suspicious, jaded, untrusting, controlling, seeing conspiracy and enemy everywhere, repent. Ask Jesus to encounter you, to give you back your joy and your love. It is the cry we've been praying in this church. Oh, Jesus, renew me. Oh, Jesus, revive this church. Joy is not just in what we know that Jesus has done historically or what he's going today, going to do uh, in the future. Joy is found when we know what he's saying to us today. And so we need to come together and ask him, have I lost my first love? If so, repent and come afresh. And here's the great promise. Jesus says, I will give it to you. So many of us wonder if Jesus would ever allow us to love him deeply or passionately for the first time all over again, and we miss the promise. Jesus says, yes, ask, repent, I'll show up, and you will be a different Christian. Does anyone want to be a different Christian? He says, yes. This is what we're called to do. So as Nikki comes up and we start this series, because these are intense things, because Jesus speaks so authoritatively, let's take a moment and see what he says to us now. And let's see what he says over the next few weeks to us because Jesus never humiliates his community. He humbles us for our own joy. So let's take a moment. Let's pray in, in some different ways. Number one, Jesus, some of us at this moment actually don't know you. Uh, we've done the church thing for a while or this is our first time. We do not know you. And at this moment we're going, I need to meet this Jesus I need to have purpose in my life, yes, but I also need to live for someone else, not just myself or what I am. So this is what you pray, Jesus, the same Jesus that was just read about. I come to you. 
And just like John, I, I lay down in front of you and admit, I have sinned so many times in so many ways. Forgive me. Clean me up. I ask you right now, since I put my trust in you, to take your hand and lift me up and allow me to see you and be changed by you forever. I accept you as Savior and Lord, and I do turn from my own trust in occultism or materialism or whatever I've trusted in. You, Jesus, you're the one now. And Lord, if someone's prayed that, we'd ask you to meet them. For other people among us who just needed deep encouragement because they've been truthful, they stood for truth, or they've been a, pers- a perseverant person who worked for Je- Jesus, let them know. Let them know you're pleased. Let them leave encouraged. For other people that have become all truth and no love, or they've just become unloving, there is no first love with Jesus anymore in others. I pray for godly sorrow that would lead to repentance in life. I pray even if some of us think we're okay and we're not, you would break through, break through our own self-understanding to show us. And again, to do this so we'd be uplifted and we'd know joy. But lastly, we end at this moment in this service where we're going to sing back to Jesus because there is joy in worship. He is the risen one and he's worthy of that. So Jesus, we welcome you at this moment as a church as we sing this last song. We welcome you and invite you to do your work among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, carotherscreek.ca.